Hello, everyone. Welcome to Chrononauts, a science fiction literature history podcast. I'm Gretchen, and I'm joined here with my co-hosts, JM and Nate. How are you both doing tonight? I'm doing great. I'm doing pretty good. Things have eased off a little bit. I'm having a bit of an easier time this month, which is it's a little bit busy, I guess, in some ways, but also a little bit less stressful on some levels. So, and uh, fall is here, so... I should be sleeping better, but every every time the seasons change, I seem to struggle with getting to sleep properly. So, I mean, I get to sleep, but then a couple of hours later, I'm awake and ready to go again, ready to pass out extra early. So, But I think I'm good for tonight. We should be able to go for as long as we need, but I think this might be a little bit shorter than average, although... I say that often enough, and it's not, but I think... <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll see how it plays out, but yeah. Yes. Certainly going to be an interesting discussion tonight. We, I don't think we've done an episode exactly like this before, but a lot of cool stuff coming up. Yeah, I'm doing all right as well. I've uh, been a bit busy with my semester now in, in full swing, but I've adjusted pretty well, and I am enjoying my classes quite a bit, so that's that's pretty good. Definitely better than you not enjoying your classes, that's for Yes. Sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearly. What's everybody been watching and reading and so on besides occult detective mysteries? I haven't been reading a lot of too much non-podcast stuff. I've been listening to Dickens, Our Mutual Friend, on audiobook, which is just a great performance on LibriVox. I don't get to say that too often, so it, it's really exciting wow. when I do. Yeah, One of my favorite Dickens novels, and yeah, just uh, totally love it. It's been a while since I've read it, so it's really nice to reconnect. I kind of want to read that one, but it, isn't it not finished? No, that's The Mystery of Edwin Drood. Oh, right. Our mutual friend was the last one he wrote that he did finish. Okay. So it's a good one. Oh, it's great. Yeah. I've been, besides podcast reading, doing mostly class reading, but they have been interesting books. I've been reading some works for post-colonial literature, which has been interesting. Where in particular are you looking at for those kind of works? So we're, we've kind of have different modules and they're all like different regions of the globe that we're looking at. We just finished up, we did some African literature and and cinema, Mm -hmm. and I think we have one more book left with that, and then I think we're moving to India. Cool, yeah. That's really cool. Um, Your reading is certainly a lot more diverse than mine, so, (laughs) yeah. Yeah, we we found a few interesting looking titles for potentially the podcast from India, but, you know, Mm -hmm. like with a lot of those Places in the world, there's just the issue of them not being translated into English, which is you know, always frustrating. But there's some really cool sounding sci-fi fantasy adjacent type stuff from Bengal in particular from around the turn of the century that sounded pretty interesting. I think we touched upon that briefly when we discussed the response to the Bose paper. But there was like a whole paper that chronicles the history of Bengali science fiction fantasy like adjacent type stories but again not a lot translated in english unfortunately i've been not reading too much right now i kind of go through phases i guess so a couple of months ago you know i was just reading all the time and besides the podcast stuff now i've been listening to a few things i discovered some new audio dramas by this group called seeing ear theater and they do a lot of sort of reproductions of classic genre stuff a lot of science fiction but some other things as well some i don't really know what they're sort of operating principle is so much but they seem to do a lot of pull like productions of plays and stuff like that they've done some classic sci-fi like hg wells stuff they've done some poe they've done the kindred by octavia butler which is something we'll probably be coming to later and a few other cool things and yeah and also 
I listened to the production of Blood on Satan's Claw done by Baffogab Productions, which is the it's based on this I guess the script for the film, hmm. a classic British horror film from the early seventies. And the film, while being very good, has a bit of a problem in that it was meant to be an anthology. So for some reason they decided not to go ahead with that, even though that format was very popular at the time. Maybe that's precisely why, because Amicus was sort of doing a lot of those, and maybe they just wanted to distinguish themselves. So they, instead of making it three stories at the last minute, they tried to combine it into one, and it doesn't really come together. So I think it was horror writer Mark Morris. He He did an adaptation where they really tried to kind of bring everything together a little more it's uh, make it maybe a, just a tad more satisfying in a way and it's pretty good yeah i don't know I, I like the film a fair amount in fact when i was watching the production of horse of the invisible which we may be talking about later oh. i was thinking to myself when where have i seen this lady before and you know blood on satan's claw <gasps> okay there you go yeah I, I looked at the cast list but i didn't recognize any of them and i there are definitely some actors in that film that I recognize from Doctor Who, especially. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, Zoe is in that. Yeah, poor Zoe. Yes. <laughs> and also Anthony Ainley as a corruptible vicar. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. I also recently watched the film Lords of Chaos, <laughs> which has been out for about four years now, but I just never really had that much interest in watching it, I guess. And it's a film about the black metal scene in Norway, sort of very sensationalized, kind of weirdly done. I kind of, I kind of liked it. It was sort of entertaining. And I, had, I have some thoughts about it that, that I could go on about for a bit, but I won't. But I'm glad I finally watched it, I guess, because it's kind of one of these things that a lot of people that I know have watched it. And they're always like, have you seen Lords of Chaos? Have you seen Lords of Chaos? Like, no, I never watched it. And yeah. I don't know. It was interesting, kind of took on the story of what happened with Mayhem and from Euronymous's point of view and everything. I don't know. It was it was a weird experience to watch. But I didn't dislike it. But I'll say that much anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I've been on the fence about wanting to watch that one. I'm not, I don't know if I will. I've kind of already sick of that story and, and have been for a while. I know, but... yeah. <laughs> uh, not everybody knows that story. Though, That's true. That. Not so, everybody so, does. So, but... not every... We know because... We've been into this stuff since the mid-90s, Nate and I, probably. So, yeah, but I don't know. And also, Gretchen and I have been watching some cool classic horror movies and things, like the Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman adaptations. Oh, yeah, those are great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really enjoying those. Yeah, Mask of the Red Death is... Mm. Those are definitely more Corman than Poe in some places, but I I, I think if you're going to do a Poe adaptation, especially from that time, you could do a lot worse than that. Yeah, I mean... Most of them are short stories too, right? Yeah, exactly. So you gotta yeah. kind of yeah. do your own thing, and it's, yeah. it's kind of like adapting Lovecraft. Like you're not yeah. going to yeah. stick that close to the source material. Yeah, it's like the you get the basic premise, and then you just kind of are able to do whatever you want from there. Yeah, and you have the vibe of those authors, mm-hmm. and you kind of draw in some of their things that they like to do, and that's kind of your angle, pretty much. Yeah, one of my favorite Poe adaptations is. Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key, which is oh. the uh, <laughs> sleazy Italian version of the Black Cat. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty weird. weird. Yeah. Uh, and the cat named Satan. Yeah, right. Oh, yeah. Is, that, is, is it just me or does that remind me? It, does it have some things that kind of remind me almost of The Shining as well? 
which would come later on. Yeah, I, I think a lot of those things kind of come together around that time. Yeah, no, no, it's just interesting because it predates The Shining. Yeah, but, yeah. you know, it's about this author who's slowly going crazy, kind of going weird with his typewriter and stuff like that. And an interesting flick. Gretchen, if you ever want to check that out, that would be worth a watch. <laughs> yeah. Another possible movie watch option. Yeah. So, what are our podcast platforms? You can find Chrononauts on all major podcast platforms, Spotify, Anchor, and Apple. We have a blog spot at chrononautspodcast.blogspot.com, where you can read a number of texts and translations. You can also follow us on Twitter at chrononautssf and Facebook at facebook.com slash chrononautspodcast, or email us at chrononautspodcast at gmail.com. I have recited the same blurb every time that I've done this because it's much easier to just do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We we have to repeat that every time because we know we know how these things work, right? People just stumble across these episodes one way or another and might be just from a general search or something like that. And we do want people to know where to find us and keep listening and yeah. know what this is all about. So stay connected. Yeah, I mean Pretty much every podcast I ever listen to, they always have this like pretty repetitive rundown every single episode of, of all the things that they're on and, and sort of something you get used to after a while. But still, sometimes when you get into conversation, it's easy to forget. <laughs> So, today, on the Chrononauts podcast, which is indeed a science fiction literature podcast, even though we're, we're sort of wandering around in the realms of weird and horror fiction a lot lately, and we're going to do that a bit more, but today we're going to talk about psychic detectives, occult detectives, specifically one occult detective. Now, in the English language, at least... We can trace the first examples of detective fiction to Edgar Allan Poe, whom we just talked about, and his stories of Auguste Dupin in Paris. It didn't take long for the paranormal to enter the world of increasingly popular detective-oriented fiction. It's easy to see how, and commonly believe that, Sherlock Holmes, though not a detective who dealt with the occult himself, provided a boon to the genre in the early 20th century. Interestingly, though, the field actually predates him. Genre historian Mike Ashley suggested that the fascination can be traced to the Fox sisters and their claim in 1848 that they had made spiritual contact with a murder victim. In the 1850s, a number of ghost clubs and ghost societies emerged. From there, it's not a great distance to the founding of the British Society for Psychical Research, which we've mentioned on the podcast at least twice before. Yeah, and certainly the Fox sisters and the whole 
spiritualist thing we gave a lengthy intro to in our spiritualism episode. So it kind of dovetails back in a lot of ways with, I guess, other things happening in society other than literary movements at the time. Yes, yes, definitely. And uh, the members of the society in the 1880s were, in a way, real occult detectives conducting studies that were, in their fashion, quite thorough. So the early history of this fiction subgenre, which is still going strong today, is full of names we've covered on the podcast before, which certainly helps to justify the small amount of coverage we'll be giving it. Of course, we're only really focusing on Thomas Carnacki here, William Hope Hodgson's supernatural investigator, who was wise to the ways of technology, electricity, and so on, as well as rituals, ancient manuscripts, and police-type detection work. But let's back up just a bit first. So, these men and women, and there were some women, though as far as I can tell, not till the 1920s, investigated paranormal phenomena and either rid peoples and places of undesirable hauntings, or in some cases, uncovered hoaxes. Though it is Karnaki who seems to be the forerunner for that. But also we can, of course, bring up things like Hound of the Baskervilles by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now, we can't really list everyone here. And just looking through the chronology, there are just so many names of people who wrote these kind of stories that it's completely overwhelming. But some of them did have certain features that did stand out. Sheraton Lafanu's Dr. Hesalius was one of the early ones in English. We're talking the 1870s here, 1869 to 1872. And he featured in the story Green Tea and was the protagonist of the framing narrative for the collection In a Glass Darkly, which includes his most famous work, Carmilla. And this was basically an assemblage of Hesalius's papers by his colleague. So already here we have actually a forerunner of Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson, in a way. But the, the chronology, Bibliography of Occult Detectives, a comprehensive list documenting this phenomenon till the 1920s, created by Tim Prassel, has its earliest entry way back in 1817 with E.T.A. Hoffman's The Deserted House. There's also Fitzjames O'Brien's The Pot of Tulips, published in 1855, involving a detective named Harry Escott, investigating a haunted house and using science to aid in his work. This character also appeared in the story, What Was It?, which I think we are going to cover on the podcast at a later date. Yep, and it's a great one, that's for sure. I haven't read it, so I'm looking forward to it. It's in several anthologies that I have, but somehow I've so far always skipped it, so I'm looking forward to getting to it. It's in The Dark Descent. It's very readily available online. Great story. So there's also Flaxton Lowe, Possibly the first very clear example of a psychic investigator who is in across multiple stories. And Lowe was featured in Pearson's magazine in the 1890s. His stories were supposed to be taken from accounts of the British Society for Psychical Research. The stories were written by E. and H. Heron. There was also Arthur Mackin. He had a sort of recurring character, though he was not always treated in the same manner. Sometimes... Didn't quite come across as a detective. Kind of a strange entry for sure, but his name was Mr. Dyson, and he appears 
in the role in the loosely connected novel The Three Imposters, but also in the story The Shining Pyramid. And one of my personal favorites, John Silence. The creation of Algernon Blackwood. Possibly, besides Karnaki, the most famous early 20th century example. And he was created as a sort of calm and wise figure who uses mystical as well as scientific, though not usually technological means, to solve psychical or occult mysteries. He's referred to in the stories as a psychic physician, and he accepts no payments for his cases and is a philanthropist, choosing to help those who could not help themselves and to tackle cases that especially interest him. The science in his stories usually takes the form of the then new psychoanalytical principles. Reincarnation usually also figures prominently in these stories. This was a subject of key interest to Blackwood, it seems. After John Silence and Karnaki, we have figures like Semi Duel, the alias for Prince Omar of Persia, by J.U. Gisi and Julius Smith, who appeared in Munsey Pups between 1912 and 1934. By the 1920s, the Theosophists had gone in for the thing big time, too, and the genre as a whole was thriving. Both Dion Fortune, who's considered one of the founders of modern-day Wicca, and Aleister Crowley, the Megatherian himself, created occult detective characters. The former's was Dr. Taverner, who seems to have had some pretty interesting cases, and Crowley's was Simon If, a character who was supposed to be a sort of idealized version of himself, and his stories appeared between 1916 and 18. And it was also Sax Romer, creator of Fu Manchu, and his dream detective character, Morris Claw. And a very popular entry in Weird Tales was Jules de Grandin by Seabury Quinn. Though Quinn's not very well read today, in his time he exceeded the popularity of H.P. Lovecraft. And I'm not positive about this, but it seems like de Grandin was such a popular character that once Quinn invented him, he doesn't really seem to have written much else for well over 30 years, and he produced 90 or so de Grandin stories, most of which were published in Weird Tales. You write what sells, I guess, right? Yeah. He is the occult Hercule Poirot, and like Karnaki, he deals with both occult and mundane cases, sometimes not knowing until late in the game which type he's facing. And like Sherlock Holmes, he lives with a friend, a Dr. Trowbridge, this time in Harrisville, New Jersey. Another clear example from the 1930s is Dennis Wheatley's Duc de Recle, who appears in The Devil Rides Out, The Satanist, To the Devil a Daughter, and I think one or two other novels. So if you find yourself interested in this field, a good book to check out might be Fighters of Fear, published in 2020 and edited by Mike Ashley, a name we will see a lot in many of our coming episodes because he seems to be one of the big historians of especially pulp genre fiction of all kinds, really. This anthology includes a lot of historical examples by the author's mentions as well as many, many other uh, familiar names and not. Uh, Robert Chambers is in there. Uh, I think it goes pretty much till the 1990s. And if you'd like something more contemporary, there's also Justin Gustanus. Those Who Fight Monsters, Tales of Occult Detectives. 
And that seems to be mostly very contemporary stuff. Yeah, and you, you see the format play out in other contemporary forms of media too, like film and TV shows. Right, exactly. So I was going to ask you guys, what kind of modern examples can you think of off the top of your heads that are, are very popular now that maybe people who, who are familiar with those are probably not familiar with some of the older examples I just mentioned? Russian language media is probably not too popular at this time, but there is a TV show called Detective Anna where she's basically a 19th century psychic detective solving these kind of strange mysteries and, and things like that. Oh, I've never heard of that. Yeah. So I got one, the Ghostbusters. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, like, I'm not including, I mean, I could say something like the X-Files, but I think the fact that they're working for the FBI kind of kills it for me. You know, they're not really, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there is also that character from Babylon 5 who essentially works for the psychic FBI or whatever you want to call them, which is, I thought, a pretty neat plot element of the show. Mm. Yeah, I think the ones that are sort of like private investigators are, are more interesting, kind of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And there are definitely like some some that I found. There's there's a, an author called Simon R. Green, and he writes young adult fiction nowadays. And I can't remember the name of the series, but the institute that they work for is actually the Karnaki Institute. So that was a pretty neat callback there. There's also a British show, and I guess they are kind of... they. they are supposed to be working for some kind of government department. This this show from the 70s called The Omega Factor. And it actually features Louise Jameson, who would go on to be in Doctor Who. But it was a very short-lived series. A very weird occult phenomena. Mary Whitehouse called it the most evil thing she'd ever seen, which kind of makes, obviously, that's awesome, right? She said that. <laughs> There's a lot of others. The Dresden Files. That's a very popular series now. It was first um, book series, and I think now it's on television. I think the books are more popular. I don't know. They've, they've been going on for a while. I'm not I'm not familiar with the details of them, but they're very popular. I know that. Some people really like them. So there's definitely plenty of examples to show that this genre is really alive and well. And while looking into this, the number of names of authors and characters kind of got to the point where I was just, yeah, I'll just be listing this forever. And so you should stop now. <laughs> but really, if you are interested in this, there's, there's so much that you could find. I think that's pretty cool and kind of interesting. So I'm definitely going to look into that Fighters of Fear anthology. There's, there's something like 31 stories in there across almost over 100 years. And a lot of the names I'm familiar with, but some are new to me. And he talks about them in a way that makes them all seem really interesting. So, But today, our subject is indeed Karnaki. And this character is one of William Hope Hodgson's recurring characters. Now, we decided to do this because we'd done Hodgson before, and we knew... September was kind of going to be a little bit uh, hectic. We kind of decided, yeah, let's let's visit Hodgson one last time and do all these stories. So this is a little bit of a different episode for us. We're doing the whole set of short stories, but we're not necessarily going to talk extensively about every single one. Hodgson created a couple of recurring characters that he attempted to sell in commercial markets. The other being Captain Galt, who was a smuggler of some sort and he actually features in one of the extended 
Karnaki media stories that we'll talk about a little bit later. But Karnaki seems to be a man of private means who goes about to different places in Britain. Seems to spend a lot of time in Ireland, which is interesting. Solving occult mysteries and reading places of hauntings and generally being a service to the wealthy families, I suppose, of Britain. And the format of the stories has a certain formula to them. And it's a formula that I actually quite like. I I wouldn't necessarily say that this is the best example of the formula, but the formula is essentially that it's a dinner conversation. And the guests gather around. Karnaki snuggles himself into his armchair, lights his pipe, and proceeds to tell of his latest adventure. This is pretty much the format of all the stories. I really like this format. I think that the the time machine is an absolutely perfect example of doing this right. I think that perhaps if there had been more Karnaki stories, obviously these were all written around, the first six at least were written around 1910. And five of them were featured in Idler magazine between January and May 1910. Now, I do sort of wonder if, had the series gone on, Hodgson might have developed some of the, gone a bit more into who his guests are and had them maybe converse a little bit more. I mean, one of the things I really like about the time machine is that even though it's not really about them, you do kind of get a feeling for the people around and what they're like and how they feel about things and who's a skeptic and who's not. And you don't really get the sense of that in these, but. No, and you do get occasional side quips and conversations and things like that. And Karnaki does sometimes try to involve the guests, like at the very beginning, but it doesn't really come through a lot. No. I I do like at how the end of every story, he just like kicks everybody out. (laughs) Yeah. And we'll, we'll talk about that. Yes. We'll talk about that when we maybe after we've done a couple of stories. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I think that while yeah, while the format is is one of my favorite kind of things, maybe this isn't the best example. But I don't really think that that's a fault. I just think it's still a neat way of telling the story. There are certain things about doing it this way that I think really work. Yeah, I like the framing device here, <laughs> and I was kind of mixed on some of these stories, and I did feel that. Going through some of them, they were formulaic, but the problems I had with the formula definitely was not the framing device. I I really liked Mm -hmm. him introducing everybody and kind of getting his audience all excited to hear what's going to come next with the little clues he drops at the beginning and then going into it. Yeah. It it does add a neat little touch to the tales. So rather than what we normally do, I think we'll pretty much go straight into the stories now. And just sort of talk about the general, our general sense of Karnaki as we go. And this is going to be a pretty casual thing. What we've done is we've each picked five stories out of the nine total Karnaki entries. And we're going to talk about, we're going to go around as the group. And each one of us is going to present a little bit of the story that we picked. And we're probably going to be pretty open about, you know, sort of just cutting in and and giving our thoughts and observations. So everybody just relax and have fun. I got my 6D ready and we're going to decide who gets to start and what our order will be. So no need to insert a dice sound. Here we go. All right. 
Nate, the occult forces have spoken, and they have chosen you, my friend. All right. So I'll start us off with story number one, Gateway of the Monster. Uh-huh. So this one was published in the January issue of 1910 of The Idler. And it starts us off with the dinner party assembled by Karnacki. And they're here to hear the story. So Karnacki's been away, but not for super long. And he's going to tell them what's happened in the time that he's been away. So he's changing the names to protect the identities of those involved, but... A fortnight ago, he received a letter from an Anderson asking him to investigate haunting. So he goes out and checks it out. And from the butler, he learns the history of the gray room. The door is prone to slamming open and shut in the middle of the night, and bedclothes are torn off the bed and strewn everywhere in a heap. And the noise of the door slamming just makes it impossible for the butler to sleep. Yeah. It's apparently been an issue for 150 years. And three people have been strangled in it, and Karnacki decides to investigate the issue in depth, much to the butler's dismay. But during his examination, the butler yells him to get out as something's going to happen, and one of the candles goes out, and Karnacki makes this mad dash for the door and gets out just in time. But the butler's really stressed out about all this, and Karnacki goes to bed around midnight in a room down the hall from the gray room. And he's awoken by a crash and isn't able to take a step towards the gray room as if something is holding him back. So he goes back to his bedroom and locks the door. And at daybreak, the butler is still ruffled, but Karnacki gets some breakfast and coffee. And now that it's day, he can examine the gray room a little easier. And it's a mess of bedclothes, and he decides to set up a camera apparatus to see if he can't capture what it is in action. So he gets his revolver out, starts hearing the noises again, and he feels something on the other side of the door that's soft through some unknown sensation. And he draws a pentacle in chalk around himself and again waits out the night, the noises subsiding once more with the day. The seals he placed all around the room are still unbroken, and the negative from the camera doesn't develop anything useful. So after some brief errands, he sets up the camera again, and this time puts a cat in the room. He draws a number of protective symbols across the room with various materials, salt, garlic, and that kind of thing. But the most useful is his electric pentacle. Yes. So he hooks up the battery, and the vacuum tubes start to glow blue, which remain the only light source after the candles flicker and go out. And he starts to feel something emerging from the bed. The door starts to slam. The cat is killed, but the mysterious ghostly hand can't seem to penetrate the electric barrier. In what seems like frustration, it beats the dead cat against the floor. Karnacki almost messes up by accidentally moving a part of his body outside the barrier, but the thing doesn't get him. And when day comes, he removes the body of the cat and investigates the room further. In the corner where the bedclothes were, he finds the luck ring of the Anderson family itself is shaped like a pentacle. 
and the ring had been haunted since the days of the Crusades. Anyone who wears it will have a tragedy befall them, and Karnaki theorizes the ring itself might be a gateway. So he sets up the electric pentacle again, and the creature is once again summoned, but this time is trapped inside the pentacle. And realizing it can't escape, Karnaki shuts the room and leaves, comes back the next day, and sets up a furnace inside the pentacle in which he incinerates the ring. Stopping the haunting, Karnaki is able to sleep three nights in the Grey Room, much to the butler's surprise. And with this, the guests are dismissed. Yeah, I thought this was a great introduction to the series. We get both the use of the weird ritual stuff, you know, drawing the occult symbols in chalk and garlic, but also his novel use of electricity. So the vacuum tube-powered electric pentacle is such an awesome invention. And it's another really cool example of how Hodson is plugged into the emerging technologies of the time. Uh, vacuum tubes had only been developed in 1904, and this was written less than 10 years later in 1910. And they would find widespread usage in particular radio and loudspeaker technologies at the time, but arguably their most more important usage would be in electronic computers in the 1940s. But those were still several decades away. So, I mean, it, I, I can't really say what Karnacki is using it for. He never really goes into too much depth. Maybe he's amplifying a psychic signal or something like that to act as a repellent, which he does kind of pick up on in some later stories. But yeah, it's, it's a cool use of the technology. And I do like the, the camera stuff, too, of him developing these negatives and taking the time to go out and get glass plates and you know him inspecting them and what can the camera pick up and what can it. It's, again, uh, interesting use of novel technology. It is a bit cruel to the cat here. <laughs> there, yeah. there is a bit of a recurring theme in the stories. I don't know if we're going to talk about the story that comes after this, but it's like really bad in that one. So the uh, <laughs> yeah, a lot of violence against animals. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, at first I started. I was like, "Wow, how many animal deaths will, will there be?" But it's actually <laughs> only two stories. Uh, yeah, the the rest of them don't really have any of that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I mean, as bad as that story you're talking about is, none of those are, well, okay, maybe one of them is Karnaki's fault, but <laughs> it's not really. Like, the you know, the cat's basically the canary this time. Yeah, right. And, yeah. Yeah, that detail about the hand going and just smacking the cat's <laughs> body <laughs> against, the, like, the floor was, like, so gruesome. <laughs> It was. I think you mentioned the last time we did Hodgson Gretchen, you were saying that when a cat dies in these stories, it's always done as like a punchline or a joke or yeah. something like that. And that's just what it feels like here is like almost yeah. like a comic splatstick scene from an Evil Dead or something like that of this like ghostly hand thrashing this like cat all around the room that's already dead enough. Yeah, but it was also kind of scary. Like the, this thing's really mad, you know, yeah. like it's really, really violent and it wants to do harm to something. And presumably it's been doing, it's been that way for about 150 years. Mm. Certainly the butler is shaken up by it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the story, I, I kind of wanted to know more about the, the backstory about the ring. It's the kind of thing that like, he goes into a little bit in one of the other stories, but obviously something like a haunting, right? It has a reason. Usually it has some kind of backstory or some cause. It's not always known, but... There's usually something there. And, you know, he just kind of says, well, it was obtained in the Crusades under mysterious circumstances. We can kind of guess 
what it might be. Probably something violent and shitty. <laughs> it's like the luck ring, as long as nobody wears it. Right. It's a very ironic name, of course. Yeah. If somebody wears it, then it, it activates the curse. And yeah. so 150 years ago, this guy was just drunk and he's like, I'm going to wear the ring. Everything will be fine. And his family gets strangled and he's so mortified that the next day he goes and sleeps in the room and meets the same fate. And presumably he's a, probably a big healthy guy and no match for the invisible demon hand. Yes, the monstrous hand. Yes, yes. Yeah, no, I kind of like that it didn't data dump on you like he does in some of these other stories. He does keep the pacing pretty quick in this one. And mm-hmm. some of them he just kind of gets bogged down with, I don't know, it kind of goes through the same cycles where it's, his stages of investigation. And I guess you kind of have to do that in a detective story, but sometimes it feels like, all right, you know, I, we've gone through this routine already. Like let's get to the good stuff here. But I thought the ending to this one was pretty satisfying and cool. And Mm -hmm. he he does keep it that way. Yeah. I I agree with that. I don't think, I I don't know. Maybe it's just because there are not that many stories. And because after the idler stories, I think the format does change somewhat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Not the formula of going to the dinner guests and stuff like that, but just the way the stories play out mm-hmm. changes. And also with these, you don't know whether they're going to be supernatural or not till pretty close to the end sometimes. So I think there's enough variation that that, that didn't really bother me. And I mean, you know, of course, he's, he's working at his thing and he has his methods and he's going to employ his methods. He's going to put on the seals and he's going to light the candles and he's going to, it is a comfort thing in a way. It's like, this is feels, it feels right. It feels like this is what Karnaki's supposed to do. And he has his routines of that have presumably been established over a period of many years. And you can actually see, I mean, it's hard to say exactly what order the stories are supposed to take place in, but there is a little bit of a talk of time placement and you can sort of see him learning a bit as he goes. Yeah. Because one thing we will see throughout these is Karnaki's not infallible. He makes a lot of mistakes. And he's also quite fearful. Yes. Yeah. I really like that aspect, especially where I think a lot of times with like, and I think this is the case because, you know, when you get like Sherlock Holmes, you don't really get to see him as vulnerable as you get to see Karnaki. And I think a part of that might be because it's not Sherlock himself telling the story. It's kind of Watson coming from like a place of seeing externally how Sherlock is is handling something. But I like that Karnaki kind of brings into play those times when he does get afraid of something. Yeah, and it's an interesting contrast. I mean, Poe's detective character is, again, another brilliant guy who just kind of always spots the correct thing from the get-go. But through a lot of these, Karnaki's kind of like fumbling his way through. Yeah. He tries the occult stuff, he tries the technology, and a lot of times it just doesn't work on the first try, and he really has mm-hmm. to get a go at it. Yeah. And uh, sometimes he kind of makes things worse or does something that he, he feels kind of bad about later on. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he seems like he, he is often in fear of his own spiritual dissolution. Like he says quite often, there are things that are worse than death. And mm-hmm. sometimes encountering one of these beings, the outer monstrosities, he calls them, mm-hmm. encountering one of these things can lead to something that is soul destruction, basically. Mm-hmm. And he is putting himself at risk all the time when he 
does these things. Speaking of putting one at risk, did anybody else find it funny that Anderson never shows up like anywhere in the story? He just kind of yeah. hightails it, yeah. runs, runs away. Yeah, he just kind of uh, leaves the letter with the butler. Like, you guys figure it out. Yeah. And another thing that was funny, too, about the butler, he was like very scared for Karnaki, but at the end, he's not exactly happy. He liked the legend of the ghost. He, he's almost disappointed seeming that the ghost is gone now. Well, I wonder if that means because, like, he has to deal with Anderson being back around the house all the time. I mean, maybe Anderson was just doing his, like, rich guy lord thing out in London and living up the high life while he has this, like, ghost infestation problem. And, you know, that really gave the butler the run of the house. You know, he's, like, the the man running things. And now that Anderson has a ghost-free house to come back to, maybe he get taken down a peg or two. Yeah. There's little funny things in the stories that I thought were slightly humorous, and I think that were intentional. Mm -hmm. It's very subtle, but I think I think it's there, and mm. it's, it's kind of neat. Something that, that the stories are not entirely earnest all the time, mm. which which I think is cool. Yeah, yeah. What do we think of Karnaki as a character? Yeah, I, I like him as a character. I mean, he's yes. <laughs> he's kind of like a I don't know, like a gruff, but I don't I don't know how to else to describe him. I mean, the way he interacts with his guests versus the way he interacts with his clientele, I think, are quite different. But uh, the way he just tells his stories, the intro and the ending segments, I think, add a lot of personality to the character. Hmm. One thing uh, I know that uh, JM's thinking of the same thing I am. There's other works by different authors that incorporate the Karnaki character into it. And there's one introduction to like a collection of Karnaki stories that describes him as rude. Yeah. <laughs> and, and unpleasant. And unpleasant. And I don't necessarily think that's the case. I, I actually think he's, I know that he has like his out you go, which is how he ends yeah, every, right. <laughs> how he ends every conversation of like, everyone just leave my house now. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I think that it's never seemed to me as like rude in any way. It seems more like he does it in a more genial fashion. And they kind of make a point of saying like, oh, he just does, does that like, in like a very lighthearted way to kind of yeah. conclude the evening. He's like charmingly um, blunt, I think. Yeah, that's what I think. Yeah, he's just that kind of personality, and he always says that it's genial, like you said. Yeah. And I think he's just a man that likes routine. I think he's someone that has a very set way of doing it, and like his friends seem to accept that and are happy to go along with it. Mm-hmm. He's eager to get right down to the business, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, he has a certain type of personality that... I don't know, like, it's the kind of thing that gets me thinking, like, because to me, it didn't really seem that rude either. And he does, yeah, like, he does things like when Dodgson, by the way, <laughs> Dodgson is the name of the narrator. So, yeah. you know, Dodgson, Dodgson, <laughs> right? Yeah. Wonder who that's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder. <laughs> I thought that was a little cute play on words. <laughs> but, like, when he shows up late one time, Kardaki shakes his fist at him, right? <laughs> and it's obviously, he's just playing, right? It's obviously he's mm-hmm. not. How dare you be late, right? Like, it's kind of, right. And, and and I just kind of feel like sometimes, I don't know. I don't know what it is. People have different degrees of how they perceive behavior, right? And, and I've always been somebody who, I don't know, like every now and then I've, I've kind of upset people by being playful like that. And it kind of makes me think, yeah, people are, are different, right? So that not everybody perceives things the same way. And whereas we think, Karnaki seems like a nice guy. He seems 
very genial and he seems like yeah i mean and i respect a man who or a woman who knows when to be like okay it's time to go now right like i, I there's nothing more that that annoying than the prolonged departure that lasts forever and ever you know yeah. what i mean and this guy just knows he's like he stands up and he's like all right see you guys later and i want to sleep yeah <laughs> <laughs> finish up the pipe head to bed another thing i noticed too is that he says various things about the hauntings and about the things that he has to deal with and the people that he interacts with who have to experience these things. And he says things like he doesn't resent or, or criticize anyone who runs away or anyone who turns and like can't deal with it. And the butler is like, in this story, the butler comes in in the morning and he's, just, he's all shaky and a little bit nervous. And Karnaki calls him a brick. And he says, like, it's a compliment. He's like, oh, you're doing great. You're handling this so well. Right. And that's, I don't know, that doesn't seem like something that, yeah, aloof, rude person would say. But it was just really interesting. Gretchen and I somehow, and we ended up reading this the very same night, I think. And yeah. <laughs> this introduction to the new adventures of Thomas Karnaki. I can't remember who the editor is now. Oh, Sam Gaffin. Yes. And... He was just saying, oh, you know, it's it's interesting that Karnaki has persevered. And he's like, because he's such a rude, unpleasant persona. And I know we both were like, uh, I, didn't, I didn't really feel that. I didn't feel that at all. And one of the other things that we might discuss later, which is a crossover piece, that writer, Andrew Cartmill, also seemed to believe that Karnaki must be a pretty nice guy. That definitely comes across. So I don't know, just different perceptions, I guess. So that's we were talking about Sherlock Holmes earlier, and how it seems like in many of the modern interpretation of Holmes, people want to take him down a bit. They want to take him down a peg because they think that he's a smug character and that he's acts in a way that's contemptuous of people who aren't as smart as him. And I never really got that impression from the Holmes stories either. Yeah, I think that. Out of both of them, that Holmes would still come off as a little more smug than Karnacki does. But even then, I don't think he deserves quite the re reputation that he's gotten. It's really a strange dismissal. I mean, I think he endures because it's just a cool character. I mean, he's mm. got all these neat devices and weird occult knowledge. I forget if he does it in this story, but he does it in a lot of them where he just cites... Yeah. these like made up occult books and things like that and yeah. oh, man i love fake occult books yeah he does reference this is yeah the six and manuscript yeah i was going to mention that yeah in this very first story that, that that's the first time he mentions it and it just comes up in most of the other stories as well yeah yeah i really like that i actually i wrote down what the excerpt from the six and manuscript is in this book so he's talking about the pentacle and why the pentacle is a powerful thing and it's interesting. It, it reminds me of the Necronomicon, obviously. Right. And especially the Simon Necronomicon that came out in the 70s. That has this style. It's also the style of, well, something else that may have directly influenced that. That I think we'll talk about at the very end when we talk about the last the last story. That we kind of agreed that, that it's going to come toward the end. Because, But he's talking about the pentacle. So the ring is a pentagon. The ring... That is the gateway of a monster is the pentagon shape. So it doesn't have the raised mounts that the pentacle has. And he's talking about the mounts. And he says, the mounts, which are the five hills of safety. To lack is to give power. 
to the demon, and surely to favor the evil thing. And they're all written in this, like, very archaic kind of way. Yeah. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be from the 14th century. Yeah. So the spelling is crazy. Yeah, like Old English. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's, so there's a few a few references to that throughout. And I think in the, it's pretty consistent, even though it doesn't talk about this very much in this story. The Saba ritual is mm. brought up. I don't know how to pronounce that because it's got three A's on each side. Yeah. Sama. The Sama ritual. Very Finnish looking word. Yeah. It is, yeah. It's kind of Finnish, yeah. So this ritual is very mysterious and interestingly, it's incomplete. Mm. But apparently, even though it's incomplete, each line of the ritual has its own degree of power. So the last line, for whatever reason, is unknown. Although, it too does play some significance later. So it's actually, I mean, even though it doesn't play a huge part in these stories, the lore is is there, and it's significant, and it's consistent within itself. Not even just relating to, like, other matters of the occult, but also with Karnaki's own cases, because in this story... As well as several others, he brings up other cases that he's discussed with his friends before. And he brings up the Black Veil case, which is mentioned numerous times throughout Hodgson's stories. Because it's one that kind of proves that the electric pentacle is, like, essential and can be, like, very useful for survival. And he seems to like bringing that one up, but he also brings up other different cases that he's done in other stories. I wrote down a bunch of them, actually. Besides that one, there's the moving fur case, the buzzing case, the gray dog case, the yellow finger experiments, the silent garden, (laughs) the grunting man case, the nodding door, the steeple monster case. There's a whole bunch of them. And I think Conan Doyle did that as well, where he often refers to untold adventures, which obviously all the fan fiction writers jump on, right? They're like, oh, we got to tell the adventure of the Sumatron rat, right? And like... That's a famous example, and it's interesting that he does that again, building the lore around mm-hmm. this and yeah, fleshing it out. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's really cool because we don't know what those are, but the names are picturesque enough that we can sort of imagine right what what mm-hmm. those cases might possibly have been like. And it's cool because I I think personally that, and again, we'll talk about this more later, but I think personally. If he had written more Karnaki stories, he probably wouldn't have told us what the Black Veil case was. Mm-hmm. He probably wouldn't have. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. And yeah, this story was good, and it kind of sets the template. I think that the stories are, are they definitely have a little bit of scariness to them. They have this real feeling of dread, and I think that what he does well is not just describe what's happening, not just describe the events themselves, but describes how Karnaki feels, and this is a person who's experienced, and he knows what he's doing, to a point, anyway. He doesn't completely, like you said, Nate, he bubbles through, kind of, because these are forces that are pretty unknown. But he he's often in terror himself. So we feel that, too, and we feel that the danger is real. Obviously, Karnaki came back to tell the dinner guests about it, so he's fine, but maybe one day he won't. Yeah. And they won't get any more summoning cards. No, this is definitely a great start to the series. Very, very strong opener. 
All right, so I'm going to roll for the next one. All right. We'll see who gets... Okay, Gretchen. You have been chosen. Yes, the fates have decided on me. my first story i also did choose gateway of the monster but (laughs) i I. yeah (laughs) the one that the one that i am going to go with is horse of the invisible which is one of the other stories that was published in the idler in 1910 and it has a bit of a longer opening than usual before karnaki begins his tale dodgson the narrator arrives early to the detective's home and finds him recovering from a number of injuries, face bruised, body stiff, and a hand bandaged. He hands Dodgson uh, a number of photographs, which all depict the same young woman in different settings looking frightened. One, however, stands out from the others, a photo of the woman looking up in shock at what appears to be an enormous hoof right above her. Once the rest of the group has arrived and they've eaten dinner, Karnaki launches into his story. He is called upon by a Captain Hisgins concerning a family legend. According to the legend, if the firstborn child of a Hisgins is a girl, she will be haunted by the spirit of a horse during her courtship. In the past, multiple firstborn women of the family have died during the courtship period by suicide, supposed broken hearts, and one seeming to be kicked by a horse. The legend had died down, as for several generations, the firstborn had been a boy. That was not the case for Captain Hisgins, and now that his firstborn daughter is engaged, the legend seems to be coming true. Karnaki learns that Miss Hisgins and her fiancé, Beaumont, have heard the sounds of neighing and hooves on multiple occasions, and that the latter, during one of these incidents, was hit by a force strong enough to break his arm. There had been another strange event the night before Karnaki arrived, which the detective learns about from Beaumont. He and Miss Hisgins had been together with her aunt as night fell, when the two began to hear the trotting of a horse outside the front door. When Beaumont went to check on it, the door swung shut behind him. He heard Miss Hisgins blow him a kiss in the hallway and thought she had followed him, but then realized that it wasn't her and thought it was some being trying to lure him towards the sound. The two then heard uh, a horse galloping again. After hearing this account of the two lovers' experience, Karnaki starts to apply natural explanations to what they heard. As he's doing so, however, they all hear the sound of a hoof in the room where they were previously. After listening to the pacing of the horse in shock for several minutes, Karnaki and Beaumont head towards the room to see what is in there. As they do, though, they hear the trotting go to the door of the room and pass through it into the hall where the two men are standing. They press against the walls of the corridor, keeping away from the invisible source of the sounds. Once they realize it is after Miss Hisgins, however, the two run after it and find the woman being shielded by her father. The noises stop, though still concerned for Miss Hisgins' safety, 
Karnaki arranges a pentacle around her bed to stay in for the rest of the night. He also gives Beaumont the same protection. Though there is further galloping heard, nothing else occurs that night. The next day, Miss Hisgins' cousin, Harry Parsket, and I want to say about the names in this story, I keep wanting to say Higgins, and I keep wanting to say Park Park <laughs> yeah. Parkets. It was it, such... that always kind of threw me a little bit too. <laughs> yeah, I had to make sure I had like I was reading them correctly and typing them correctly because I kept thinking <laughs> I wasn't. But yeah, the next day, Miss Hisgins' cousin Harry Parsket arrives, who Karnaki takes to pretty quickly. Yeah, he seems like a really nice guy. Yeah, he seems like a great guy. Near evening, Miss Hisgins and Beaumont take a stroll together, while Karnaki and the captain chat. They are interrupted, though, by news from the butler that Miss Hisgins was screaming and that she and Beaumont could hear the horse. After shouting up to Parskett's room, Karnaki runs out where the couple is, hearing gunshots. Soon, Parskett is by his side, and the two come across Beaumont, wounded and with his revolver out, standing protectively over Miss Hisgins. Getting the couple into the house, the doctor is called to check on them. Once his wound is treated, Beaumont tells Karnaki that they heard the horse and started running. Miss Hisgins had fallen, and before he was struck, he swore he saw a huge horse head as he shot into the darkness. The rest of the night passes with more sounds of a horse, but no serious incidents. The Hisgins decide to arrange for the marriage to happen as soon as possible, and Beaumont leaves to get a marriage license in London. After hearing this, Karnaki wants to take pictures of Miss Hisgins in different parts of the house, since a camera can sometimes catch things a human eye can't. The woman agrees, and with the help of the captain and Parsket, they take a number of photos around the house, before trying some down in the cellar. In the darkness of the cellar, as Karnaki is taking one photograph, there comes a neighing sound, and he sees Miss Hisgins look up in fear at something not visible to him. And it's not just a normal neighing sound either. It's like this oh, yeah. really messed up, like, not right sounding neighing sound. Yeah, very, very eerie neighing. Everybody's heard a hearse before, but this is something different. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite part. Yeah, it's very, it's like gobbling neighing. It's a really weird type of description for the neighing, but it's, it's not normal neighing. Yeah. Karnaki and the other men rush to Miss Hisgins to help her out of the cellar, away from danger. They then search the cellar, but find nothing. Later, the image from the cellar develops, the same picture that Dodgson was looking at before Karnaki's story. The night that follows goes by without incident. The marriage is delayed until the next day, and Beaumont, having returned, is sure this last night before the ceremony will result in something happening. Karnaki arranges a bell that could be rung and could alert the butler and footmen if he, Beaumont, and Parsket, who are on guard, need help. However, Parsket notices the bell doesn't work and leaves to fix it. With just Beaumont with him, the sound of hooves start up once again, getting closer, and the lamp lighting the corridor they are in is smashed, leaving them in darkness. Karnaki lights a match and sees a horse head behind Beaumont, who is in a pentacle Karnaki set up for him. The match goes out, and both men, carrying guns, shoot in the direction of the horse. Karnaki realizes that Beaumont is struggling with the creature and goes to help, getting struck as well. The captain, breaking out of Miss Hisgins' bedroom where he had been guarding her, as well as the butler, join in the chaos, and soon the creature is subdued. The creature, it is revealed, is Parsket in a horse costume. 
However, <laughs> just as Parsket. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> it's uh, so one of those things where I I'm really getting the 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 ridiculousness of it as I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's, it's it's so it's it's so weird because up until that time it was very convincing that it was supernatural like. Yeah. But I think I think in a way it's effective. But yeah, we'll we'll get to that. Yeah, because the night is not over yet. Because just as Parsket is regaining consciousness, there are the sounds of hooves again, which has the man looking towards the noise in horror, this incident not being his fault. Everyone rushes to flatten against the wall and keep back from the sound that goes through the corridor, though Parsket places himself in front of Miss Hisgins' room, blocking the doorway, then faints. Once the commotion is over, the other men check on him and find that he is dead, sacrificing himself to save Miss Hisgins. Karnaki then tells his guests that he realized Parsket was in love with Miss Hisgins and meant to scare Beaumont away using the horse legend. However, some incidents, such as the photograph and Parsket's death, put into question whether the supernatural did play a part. He says that the photograph could have been a fake, and that his death was caused by a heart spasm, which could have been from fright, but there is still no certainty as to whether these rational explanations can fully prove there was no truth to the horse legend. He continues, however, on a later note, confirming that the marriage happened the next day. With the story over, he dismisses his guests. So, yeah. Horse that costume. One, <laughs> horse costume. Yeah. I spent the beginning of this reading period kind of feeling that I didn't really like the non-supernatural ones as much. Mm. But I kind of changed my mind. I don't know. I, I started to like those a little more the more I thought about them, kind of. And mm. This one was weird, for sure. Yeah, so yes. this one... So I think there's four non-supernatural ones, and I liked two of them better than this one, and I liked oh. one less than this one. But this one has, like, some amazing imagery, and I mean, yeah. I've never read a story with a horse ghost in it before. Like, that's just, like, <laughs> such a cool concept. And I don't even mind that it was a non-supernatural ending. It's just, this guy going around in a horse costume and it's like wouldn't that give him away like immediately it's not like ah, man like yeah. I, I can't believe that that's what he came up with for the for the non-supernatural explanation yeah. here but it is kind of cool how he does leave it open you know there's elements of the story he can't explain that are right. still mysterious and still indicate a supernatural presence even though this fool is uh, i don't even know what and he's Karnaki doing karnaki is very fallible like i don't know i mean who knows, right? Like, it does seem pretty silly, especially from nowadays perspective. You know, you're just kind of thinking, oh, it like this guy, this guy's dressed up the whole time, and, and but <laughs> at the same time, like, it's so weird because it's almost like Karnaki can't really, he can't really wrap his head around it all. Like, yeah, there's the things that are not quite explained, and also the fact that he thought this guy was really cool. He liked this guy. He thought, and he seems actually sort of affected by that. Like, doesn't really go into it that much, but yeah, he does seem like he's kind of like shocked and, and a little bit bothered by that. The fact that it, who knows what's up with this guy? He has some weird <laughs> alternate personality or something like that going on, right? There's yeah. a whole other story behind that. The story of the damaged, lovesick cousin, right? I don't know. I, I don't know why he exactly went 
with that. It it feels like he almost rushed the ending in a way. Like he needed some kind of out for the story, and he clearly just didn't want to make it a ghost that Karnaki can dispel with his electric pentagram or whatever. Yeah, because he'd already done that a couple of times. Yeah, right. Right. Well, sort of. But yeah, just uh, uh, th- this one really puzzled me at the at the end. Uh, I, I have to say. <laughs> Yeah, see, I, I really did, like, the reason I chose this is I, I think the build-up to it is, like, really interesting. And, like, the concept of, like, a horse ghost. And even, like, Karnaki in the beginning is, like, this is, he didn't believe this. It's like, oh, this is ridiculous. And this sort of idea of, like, how outlandish it is, that it kind of gets your attention. But it is very <laughs> strange the way that it, it concludes <laughs> with this guy, this just random guy in a horse costume. And <laughs> usually y- you think of like horse costumes as being two people. Right. So it's just so <laughs> strange to think of just this one guy going around in this. And I think it was just this, the top like, half too, right? Like it was, yeah, his it was legs. just the top half. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah, it does have some great scenes of like the, I guess, quote unquote hauntings, but like the scenes where they're outside in the park and the stuff in the cellar and the idea of like, you know, this like demonic sounding horse in it. Yeah. Cause I mean, a regular horse can kick with incredible force. I mean, what yeah. can a supernatural horse kick with, you know, that would be even worse. Except he probably couldn't move very well with that costume on. No, so. I can't imagine so. <laughs> so probably not that great at kicking. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I guess it was enough to break Beaumont's arm there, but yeah. And bruise them up pretty badly. Because even after the whole scuffle, before they find out that it's him in the in the costume, like, they say, I think, that Beaumont was, like, fainted because yeah. he was, like, beat up so bad from yeah, it. Yeah, he got, like, hit in the head or something like that. And it's yeah. just, like, is he just going around in this, like, half-horse costume just, like, punching them with his hands through, like, the horse <laughs> legs and, like, he has, like, a hoof thing on the end? Like, is that what's happening? I, I, it just feels very silly. Yeah, it's kind of inexplicable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and for some reason, out of all the ones they could have done, the BBC has decided to adapt this one. Right. Yeah, I thought that was also a very strange decision. Yeah, I didn't have a chance to watch that, but both of you did, right? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I watched the rest of it last night. I started it maybe about a week ago and just to get a feel for their production style and that. But I don't know. It was pretty okay. Like, 70s BBC... Interestingly enough, the 70s BBC drama adaptations and things like that, like the great works of literature, like the War and Peace they did with Anthony Hopkins and a bunch of Dickens adaptations, feel a lot smaller and more stagey than like the BBC genre TV, for whatever reason. But this, again, it's like that kind of Dickens-y 70s BBC adaptation where it does feel extremely stagey, very small sets low budget and they kind of get around it in some places with the special effects and practical effects of the camera cutting away and things like that but i don't know it just kind of felt stilted and dry in places and the fact that it's just like such a weird story to begin with i don't know they they didn't really pull it off with with what they had i think that actually made me appreciate the format of the stories more yeah (laughs) uh it made me kind of realize well i mean not that i hadn't maybe realized this before sometimes but that not everything, not everything can be like adapted. Like some things are just done that way because they're done that way. And part of the charm of the Karnaki stories is that he's telling you these stories, right? And he's like relating them to an audience, and he gets to say things like, "I hope you understand," or "Am I making myself clear?" Like 
there's a charm to reading the stories, just like there is. I mean, yeah, there have been some pretty successful Holmes adaptations, but like nothing beats. I'm Dr. Watson, and this is the account of my friend Sherlock Holmes. I can only reveal some of his cases to you, but I'm going to do my best. Mm. And like, there's something to be said for that. And I think that like with this story, the BBC had to add a lot of dialogue to what was essentially a story where you were just being told events. And the stuff that they added was like not that interesting and not that I don't know, I didn't I didn't really enjoy it. <laughs> it kinda made me think, yeah, I, I'd much rather read Karnaki or hear Karnaki tell me this. Yeah, I was watching it with my wife and she was just kinda casually watching it we on her phone and she was just like, This kinda sucks, doesn't it? I was like, Yeah, yeah it's not that great. <laughs> Yeah, I, I kind of agree. Yeah, Donald Pleasance plays Karnacki, and I don't know, I like Donald Pleasance as an actor, but his delivery is just kind of off for the Karnacki character. Like, he, I, I'm sure he would play a fine detective, but it just doesn't feel like Karnacki in the role. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, it, it was it was definitely not. You know, I kind of think the, the other adaptation that I found, which I didn't have time to watch, was The Whistling Room, done by Coca-Cola Playhouse <laughs> in the 1950s. <laughs> And I didn't watch that, and now I kind of wish I'd watched that instead, because that that would seem to be a cool thing to try and pull off. Yeah. Right? You don't need a horse in that one. You don't need, although you, anyway, well, you'd have to show certain things. But I think it still seems like the kind of story that would be more sensible to adapt, right? And you don't have to kill a cat on screen either. Right. Yeah. Right. The BBC doesn't do that. No, No animal violence. The British animal cruelty laws are, are notoriously serious, right? Like, they they couldn't even sell Cannibal Holocaust in Britain without cutting out big chunks of the movie, but... Yeah. Anyway, not really worth a watch. The whole format of the show this is on is, a, is called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes. And, I mean, when you think about it, yeah, there were a lot of them. Yeah, she came up once before on the podcast when we did the yeah. uh, Dixon Torpedo story. They did an adaptation of that on oh, the yeah. series that I didn't get a chance to watch, but... Yeah, now that one, that one I can almost see working a little better, but I don't know. I don't want to, judging by the how good this one was, I don't really want to say that necessarily. I can imagine it working better. Yeah. The whole concept is kind of funny, right? Like, it's like, here are the rivals of Sherlock Holmes. Like, it's it's just weird. It's a, We're basing a whole series concept on the fact that it's not Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess they did have the Sherlock Holmes stuff already done. Oh, for sure. Yeah. At that time. So, you know, got to do something. And I guess some of these characters do have their differences, right? Like, it's just weird. I don't know. The concept is a little strange to me. I mean, I get what they're going for with it. You've seen Sherlock Holmes. Now get ready for not Sherlock Holmes. Now see the other guys. Yeah. (laughs) And one woman detective. (laughs) Yeah. But they do do some good stories, and there's actually a radio series as well. I didn't see any Karnaki stories in that but there's there's a bunch of other cool stuff so i don't know it's, it's maybe it's cool in its own way but this story was a weird one to adapt yeah i figured out of all the stories to choose they could have chose at least like two or three others that i think would have worked better for the format than this one yeah it's kind agree. of a strange choice i would have picked one of the supernatural stories for sure <laughs> mm-hmm. but then i do like a certain amount of ambiguity in this one and it did kind of leave me with a cool feeling in the story format i think and again, it kind of speaks to not just the fallibility of Karnaki, but the fallibility of human experience, if I may put it boldly. Right. <laughs> it's right. like we're fooled by such weird 
things sometimes. And like the non-supernatural stories, what I like about them is, yeah, like at first when I read them, I was like kind of dis- I was disappointed that they weren't supernatural. Like I, I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll get to one of the other ones. Maybe not. But I don't know. I was like, I don't really, I don't really like the explanation enough. Like it's not satisfying. I mean, it's satisfying in a story context, but it's not like it doesn't draw me in enough. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I kind of changed my mind. You know, I kind of I, I read a couple of them a second time just because they were short and just because I wanted to just kind of get a feel for them. Sometimes I just kind of I'm just kind of like I. I Warmed up to those ones a little bit more, I think. But the reason for that is that he treats them as one way or the other in the same way up to the last moment. Like, he treats them like they are weird manifestations. And that's how you feel them, whether they are not. You feel them as uncanny. Yeah. I think there's only one story where there's, like, no supernatural implications whatsoever. But certainly out of the original six... I would say two. I don't know. Maybe when we're we're finished the discussion, we'll come back to that. Because yeah. I say I would say two, but maybe not. Well, I suppose we'll see. We'll see. And I think now it's time to talk about one that's very clearly supernatural. next story we're going to talk about is The Whistling Room. So, this was a third story printed in Eiler in March of 1910, and I found something really cool. I don't have an exact source for it. There is a site where I found what was printed in the Eiler magazine at that time being a disclaimer. (laughs) And this is the funniest thing. I love this. So, apparently this was printed in the magazine in the March issue. Complaints continue to reach us from all parts of the country to the effect that Mr. W. Hope Hodgson's Karnacki stories are producing a widespread epidemic of nervous frustration. So, far from being able to reassure or calm our nervous readers, we are compelled to warn them that the Whistling Room, which we published this month, is worse than ever. Our advertising manager had to go to bed for two days after reading the advance sheets. A proofreader has sent in his resignation. Worst of all, a smartest office boy. But this is no place to wail or seek for sympathy. (laughs) It's hilarious. I kind of wonder what else the idler published. I mean, was it more like humorous leisurely magazine? Was it more like Pulp Fiction? or? Um, I didn't really, I didn't look, really look into the magazine history, uh, yeah. so and it's not one that I remember. Well, the name is oddly familiar, but I can't say where I where I've seen it before. Yeah, I don't remember it coming up on the podcast before. No, no, it has. Certainly, there's a billion of these little publications that popped up and folded in the course of a couple years. Yeah, and it is interesting too that you know, obviously it was gone by the time he was. It was no longer a venue for him by the time of the last stories. Now, the last ever story published under the Karnaki name 
we have questions about that, but we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But the other three, actually, there there was not idler space for him there. So I don't know what happened with that. Like I said, I didn't really look into the magazines. So. Yeah, I didn't either. I mean, aside from the ones mm-hmm. that we are obviously familiar with, like Weird Tales. Yeah, but this was a British magazine. And yeah, I just thought that disclaimer was so cute that I had to <laughs> include it. Yeah. That poor office boy. I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, so I read that. I thought they were. I thought they were saying like he played a trick on them or something like that because he's the smartest office boy, mm. right? And then they didn't want to go into it. They just cut them there. <laughs> so, the uh, advertising manager had to go to bed for two days. That's uh, yeah. But this is a story set in Ireland, which is seemingly a place where Hodgson enjoys setting his stories. Because there are a couple of them here, and there's Borderland, of course. And yeah, so Karnaki is recounting to his guests over wine and cigars, as usual. This concerns Eostri Castle, near Galway. Asid Tasak has just bought the place. There are three Americans, and it was probably cheap, as it's a peculiar place. They keep no servants in the place, and they get some help during the day. Managing a castle would be a lot of work. But, again, this concerns a particular room. This room whistles. Now, obviously, from the title of the story, we know what this is going to sound like. But we don't, because, and I'll get to this, but I have a question about Hodgson. (laughs) I don't really know what the sound sounds like, but Hodgson doesn't really describe it. I wonder, kind of wonder if Hodgson is a very musical person. It actually took me for a while to figure out that this was supposed to be a tune that you're hearing in the room. Yeah. Like, at first I thought, oh, so it's like a kind of a mechanical whistling, like you know, like a tea kettle sound or something. Yeah, right. Like I was assuming like yeah. a high-pitched hum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I couldn't help but think of a uh, contrast with, like, David Lindsay, who wrote uh, Voyage to Arcturus and The Haunted Woman especially, where, like, there's actually a room where you can hear weird music. And... He describes it so vividly that I actually had, like, melody in my head while I was reading. Like, that's how clear and vivid he is about describing what the music might be like. This, I had no idea. It, 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 Hodgson doesn't really, in nothing that I've read by him does he really talk about something like that. Like, music. He talks about photography, which is cool, and obviously he loved to write, but I just kind of wonder, like... Maybe he's just not a very musical person because it just doesn't come through. <laughs> but nevertheless, despite the weirdness of the whole thing, there's some doubt expressed over whether it's supernatural or not. You see, there's this woman, Miss Donahue, whom the older American brother, Sid, loves. And it's likely that he bought this place to be near to her and possibly impress her. At least that was my impression. And... They've already planned the marriage. It's going to be in two months. People in the community are not happy about this. Miss Donahue is well sought after, and apparently her own choices in the matter are not all that respected. But Tossett calls it an Irish hornet's nest, he's stirred up. Everyone's supposed to know about the whistling room. It's legendary. During a gathering where this Donahue and Tossett are present, along with several local men, Many secretive smiles are exchanged. No one has successfully lived in Yastri these past decades. They all leave. Pretty quick. Give up. The men think Tasik will be out in six months, 
and many place bets, which Tussock accepts. He's determined to win. On the second night, though, in residence, they hear the whistling. It's a very unnerving sound, like laughter, or maybe like a tune. Threatening, somehow. They fortify themselves with drink, and believe it's some kind of Irish trickery. But they can't stand being in the room now. They carry their guns everywhere. There's a feeling of danger in the air. No sooner is all this being described of Karnaki than they then hear the sound beginning in the room a ways off. And they all go, including Karnaki. The sound beats out at them. And there's a feeling of monstrosity in the air. And I'm going to quote this part because I think it's really cool. And Karnaki describes the way this happened and the way he's feeling. As the door flew open, the sound beat out at us, with an effect impossible to explain to one who has not heard it, with a certain horrible personal note in it, as if in there in the darkness you could picture the room rocking and creaking in a mad, vile glee to its own filthy piping and whistling and hooning, and yet all the time aware of you in particular. To stand there and listen was to be stunned by realization. It was as if someone showed you the mouth of a vast pit suddenly and said, That's hell. And you knew that they had spoken the truth. Do you get it? Even a bit? And that kind of goes back to what I'm saying about these stories. I'm sure it's possible to adapt them, but they're good as stories. They're good with Karnaki doing that. That's kind of what makes them awesome, at least probably half of what makes them cool, I think. So Karnaki urges them all out quick, just as the whistling rises to an infernal scream, and then goes utterly silent. Later, Karnaki hangs a belt of garlic around his neck and goes back to the room to do some measuring and setup. The room seems to be brooding, so on go the window seals and stuff like that. Though the possibility of human agency is still acknowledged, Karnaki feels sure this is one of the Saiti manifestations. And I think that's really bad. Have we seen that before? I'm not sure. I think so. I think he mentions that in the verse story as well. So that, again, is part of the lore. Yeah, I know he mentions it a few times, but I couldn't remember which stories he does. Yeah. Yeah, and it's definitely in the last story, and it's definitely... Mm. So, yeah, for straight pretty much from the first story, we're seeing that as well. And so, again, it's an example. So there's a couple of things that are different about these. Like, these are apparently, like, very strong spirit manifestations. They can shape matter or use matter to their own ends. So the material of the space around them can be manipulated by these manifestations. So, something you don't really want to mess with too much, I guess. No. As he works, the whistling begins to mock him. No one can endure being in its presence for long, including Karnaki. As he prepares to leave, a note of anger fills the room. It knows. He thinks of the sigsand. There be no safety to be gained by guards of holiness when the moisture has power 
to speak through wood and stone. Sorry, that was my my spooky voice. My spooky, (laughs) archaic voice. (laughs) Um... But I just had to read that because it's it's these these parts are really fun and again and you never see that otherwise so right yeah the 14th century spelling or or whatever it purports to be yeah so these monsters may be so powerful that no runes or protections will help it can even form inside a protective pentacle using any surrounding material for its own ends though it may take time to do so one thing that may work is the last line of the Sama ritual, but this line is unknown. Can't use that, apparently. At two in the morning, while everyone tries to sleep, the whistling commences again. Tasik boldly enters Karnaki's room for a talk, and after an hour of smoking and chatting, Tasok is roaring to go to the room with guns and get to the bottom of this nonsense. But Kanaki insists that he thinks this is a real danger. And he refers to the false materialization of the animate force through the inanimate inert. There's, there's some cool technobabble in these for sure. Yeah. <laughs> the next morning, all the seals are intact, but the seventh crossing hair of the fireplace seal is broken. And Karnaki climbs the chimney. Nothing doing. Climbs over the room, hammering and sounding looking for false boards and entrances, I guess. Secrets. Still trying to rule out the possibility that this is some wholly natural human trickery. Now, we start a thorough and complete exploration of the castle, and Karnaki continues to test the whistling, using a microphone to try to record it. This is something you always hear about in these, like, modern ghost expeditions and stuff. They always try to record it, right? Yeah. It's always a thing. So I probably started here, really. Yeah, right. And he gets his camera out in a couple yeah. stories, but I think he only pulls out the phonograph in this one. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Well, this is an audio monster. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. But he'd think he'd hear the working of machinery with the microphone if it was mechanical. Nothing, though. And I can't tell if that means the mic doesn't pick up the sound at all. But I think that's kind of the impression I get. Yeah. Like, you don't even hear the whistling. So you cross hairs all over the walls and numbered wafers on the floor. He might have to spend a night in the whistling room. He's been reluctant to do this, feeling that his protections are insufficient against this thing. Which is interesting, because it hasn't really done anything yet. Like, we don't really get the sense that it's harmed anyone. But it is so wrong-feeling and inimical, I guess, that it's like, again, that happens again and again in this, these stories. It's like a feeling that he has. And everybody has it. Like, everybody shares it. There's never any... There's never even that one guy in these stories going, I don't believe in any of this. This is bullshit. <laughs> like, you know, maybe one guy might voice something like, well, maybe it's a guy playing a trick. And Karnaki's like, yeah, maybe. But probably not. And they're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess so. It's, it's really interesting. It's different than what you would expect, I think, especially nowadays. One night after Kanaki has already been there for weeks, he's prowling around the castle past midnight. Outside the east wing, you can hear the whistling from up there in the room. He also hears men's voices. 
low and secretive. Someone gleefully comments on how awful it would be to bring a wife home to the terrible noise. There's laughter, but then they spot him and scatter in the darkness. Wow, could it all be a hoax after all? Hernaki feels like an ass. But case is not finished yet. Nothing is really cleared up. Karnaki goes home for a while and makes tacit promise to never enter the room oh, at night. And that's where we're at now. Karnaki's returning there tomorrow. So it's kind of cool. We have a part two, so we can kind of imagine. I don't think this was serialized. I think this is printed in a single issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We wait. We wait a bit and take a break. And then a bit later, a couple of weeks, actually, the guests are once again summoned. Part two, so to speak, picks up exactly where he left off. He arrives at the castle unannounced and can hear the whistling from the room window as he stands outside. In a moment of inspiration, he grabs a ladder from somewhere and climbs up. The whistling is stranger than ever, and as he looks in, he seems to see the floor heaved up and turned into a gigantic face. Those massive lips are making that infernal sound and the way he describes the lips is pretty effective kind of ugly and weird very strange these giant lips coming out of the floor (laughs) but after a moment things do seem to return to normal and he hears tasa crying out for help from within smashing through the window the room is empty but soon the wall expands into vast lips just feet from his face seems about to swallow him. Karnaki is almost ready to take his own life. That's how great the danger is. Worse than death. But then, something strange happens. There's an unknown whispering in the room, and Karnaki somehow knows it's the seventh line of the Sama ritual. Mysterious one that nobody knows. But apparently this has happened once before. This incantation saves his life, and he's able to jump back out of the window and lands seemingly headfirst on his ladder and slithers painfully down into the grass. Now, I imagine, somewhat sheepishly, Karnaki goes to the front door and knocks like a regular guest. (laughs) It's like, okay, we have to burn the room, all of it, and in a blast furnace, in a pentacle, So, short order, they get a whole bunch of guys working on it, and it's a team effort, and they strip and destroy everything. Sounds like fun. During all this, under the fireplace paneling they find is an old inscription in Celtic. Here was burned Dion Sanse, it says. Who's that? Well, apparently he was a jester to a King Alzoff. And he made the song of foolishness on another king and was punished for it. This is a legend in the area, but no one knew that Eastray Castle was really the ancient seventh castle, where King Urnor, the enemy of King Alzov, once dwelled. These two had been enemies because of some unknown family history, and things weren't so bad until the jester created the Song of Foolishness against Ernor. Alzoff was very happy about this, of course, but the song got popular, and soon Ernor heard it 
and was sent into Ruff. He stormed Alzolf's castle and burned it, taking the jester back home with him for brutal torturing and probably eventual death in the room in the East Wing where all sorts of unpleasant things happen. There's a woman involved, too. Jester Dion's wife. Whom Onor decides he fancies. And one day, the wife is found dead in Dion's arms. The jester, now tongueless, whistling the song of foolishness. And they roast him right there in the big fireplace. Dion was gone, but the whistling never left. Even King Ernor was the first to leave the castle in bafflement. And so it continued for hundreds of years. Karnaki likens it to a living spiritual fungus. Sound familiar? Finally, the Irishmen just come to hear the whistling, and we're not up to no good, really. But what of the seventh line of the ritual of Sama? Where did that come from? Arkwright. One who seems to know a little bit about the occult himself, or at least that's mentioned at one point later in a, in a different story, wants to know. It's the only, only little bit of character we get for any of these guys, really. But Karnaki merely directs him to read Harzum's monograph on astral and astaro coordination and interference and the addenda to it that Karnaki himself penned. Some protective force does intervene on the behalf of our souls, maybe regularly. The outer monstrosities are always near and ready to do us harm. As Karnaki firmly ushers out his guests, he muses on how it turned out that Miss Donahue, Tassac's bride-to-be, was descended from King Ernor. Good thing she never went into that room, he thinks. Maybe the whistler had been waiting for her. But it ends on a question. If she had, eh? If she had. And I don't really know what that means. It seems like Hodgson, uh, Dodgson is hinting at something here. But I don't quite know what it might be. I'd assume it was like that kind of intergenerational revenge, you know, taking oh, revenge yeah. on yeah. the descendant for whatever the crime the Yeah, I don't know. It's almost though it's almost as if the way it's phrased at the end is almost like questioning whether she had maybe she had been in the room. I don't know, it's weird. I I just didn't really it was a weird way to end it because it almost was like it was trying to suggest something else. Yeah. Like I got yeah, that that's definitely true. And I, I thought that story was really cool, like the backstory. That's that's kind of what I wanted from the Gateway of the Monster. I wanted that kind of backstory. Because yeah. I thought when he did it here, it was really cool. This was the first Karnaki story that I ever read. And this is probably my favorite of all of them. Like, maybe. There's one other one, which is a contender. But this one is, is probably the one. It's very memorable to me. Even though, yeah, like I was saying earlier, I couldn't figure out what the whistling sounded like. Till close, pretty close to the end of the story, you know, I kind of had a little bit of a picture in my head. As he does say that it's like a tune, like pretty early on, but I don't know for some reason it just it doesn't really describe it. So I, I couldn't tell whether it was like just supposed to be a noise or it was supposed to be a song, and that was bogging me for the full the whole first half of the story, really. <laughs> but 
once I kind of got a sense of that, I was like, yeah, okay, it's just not, he doesn't describe music that much, so. <laughs> I guess more whistling in the Andy Griffith sense rather than whistling in the <laughs> solitary pitch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But just the way, like, the way he described it as being continuous kind of made me, right, I right. guess yeah. that was at first, like, made me wonder about that. Like, Yeah, just like a single note throughout like yeah that's what i thought throughout like it didn't really register for me until very late that it was supposed to be a tune as well yeah i'm not sure it would actually be more annoying mm. yeah it could be and and it's the song of foolishness yeah right, right? like that's <laughs> significant i mean it's like mocking you and it's it's yeah. everywhere in this house and outside the castle you can hear it the shanty as he calls it amusingly it's like not at all is it a shanti, but yeah. <laughs> he's American, so I guess he's weird like that, yeah. right? He, he's like, you know, anywhere he is in this place, he will hear that. And anybody who's around there, when it pipes up, is like how he describes that part when the door opens. It's aware of you, and it knows your faults, and it's making a fool of you. So you don't want to stick around. So everybody leaves. But this one was really good. It's similar in a lot of ways to The Gateway of the Monster, I guess. But it's, I don't know, it's just a little more, to me it was just a tad more effective. And it didn't involve a cat death, so there's that. But yeah. Anyway. The ghost is also very strange here too, which I also like. Mm-hmm. I mean, much like a horse ghost being a rarity, a lip ghost is also a rarity as well. <laughs> yeah. Hodgson had some very interesting concepts for the spirits that would be haunting these stories he definitely does yeah. and i think it makes it for a more interesting read than a i guess stereotypical ghost of uh, a human-like presence that was the spirit of somebody who died or whatever yeah and his his presence is embedded in the room now like his, yeah and yeah. this imagine you have most of the time you hear it but maybe at the right moment you know you can have this other manifestation of this disgusting tongueless face leering out at you out of the floor or out of the wall it's pretty good. He does a good job of that. Yeah. What do you guys think of the protector or whatever it is? Something intercedes on his behalf. Mm. And and again, I was kind of, again, this, this comes up at a later time. And I don't think it works as well there. But here, I kind of, I don't know, it was, it, it somehow worked. It was somehow it didn't bother me that much. Like this, you know, weird force just interceding at just the right moment and speaking the last yeah. line of the ritual. It's like when they did that and the devil rides out, it was Jesus Christ or something. And that was okay, too, somehow. Like yeah. they, made, they kind of made it okay. Like It's not my favorite thing, but it's like, yeah, okay. I, I, there's some benevolent force interceding on his behalf here. Now, how benevolent it is, we really don't know. We don't know anything about it. He never calls it God or anything like that. Mm-hmm. And Hodgson himself doesn't seem to have been a believer. But, I mean, no doubt he was familiar with like he was born into a very religious family and people of the time would have kind of i guess wondered about that like what about the creator what does he have to say about these outer monstrosities (laughs) what if it's the other king yes and then like there is an adaptation of this maybe i'll watch it later i haven't I think maybe it's a Coca-Cola Playhouse thing that put me off, but <laughs> it's just a name. Yeah, pretty, pretty silly name. Everybody needs a sponsor. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I made this joke when JM mentioned this to me a few days ago about that. <laughs> you know the the two greatest defenses that Karnaki has against the supernatural: his electric pentacle 
and a refreshing bottle of Coca-Cola. Yeah. <laughs> Especially the old formula yeah. of Coca-Cola. I mean, yeah. he's got that in his mushrooms, so got a real party here. Yeah, that's I, I meant to actually look up popular recurring literary figures in advertising. Mm. Uh, it was something I, I suddenly had an interest in, in looking into now, so... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> How many times will Karnacki come up? It would be it would be interesting if they ever did use him as an ad. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'm sure somebody's used Sherlock Holmes. Ah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the character's in the public domain, so figure there's got to be a million of those ghost hunter shows. I'm sure you can oh, yeah. sell some, like, Karnacki device or whatever to tie yeah. into your media project. <laughs> <laughs> Use it to sell cameras. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The ghost Polaroid, Karnacki model. <laughs> okay, so I may bring up this story one more time, but I'll wait. Like, I think we just we covered pretty much everything. It's it's really cool. If you're going to read one Karnacki story, mm-hmm. this wouldn't be a bad one to start. Like, this is... It's pretty much got everything cool about the stories. There's even a doubt at one point whether it's really supernatural or not. Like, it's kind of... Huh. What are these guys doing? <laughs> right. Just the locals checking out the lips. Yeah. <laughs> it unfortunately doesn't have the out you go phrase at the end, which is a little yeah. disappointing, but everything else yeah. is there. <laughs> so, all right, Nate, what do you pick next? All right. So I guess let's take a little break and we'll come back with our next one. Mm-hmm. 